1 Thessalonians chapter 3. Therefore, when we could not bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind in Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. This is the word of the Lord. And you may be seated this morning. Well, the Apostle Paul had been in anguish for months, wondering how this fledgling congregation was faring, how they were holding up. He's finally received definitive word, and it's good news. Their faith was active, as he heard, their love resolute, and their hope steadfast. This was the report given to him. And of course, from the start, the gospel's foray into the city of Thessalonica was arduous and emotionally exhausting for all concerned. Paul arrived, if you'll recall, in the city of Thessalonica on the heels of suffering shameful indignities in Philippi, not from gospel converts, but from magistrates and businessmen of that city. He and Silas, they'd been beaten, they'd been jailed, and unceremoniously evicted from the town. So when they came to Thessalonica, the scars were still fresh. But Paul, committed as he was to his gospel ministry, immediately sought gainful employment to cover his own expenses. We're told that he did this because he was determined that no one accuse him of peddling the gospel for money. Day and night, he says, he engaged in this manual labor while seizing every opportunity to proclaim Christ. The mission was not only physically demanding, that would be enough, but it was not only physically demanding, it was an intense spiritual battle. He was relentlessly opposed from day one. It took just three Sabbaths of preaching the gospel before those angry and jealous Jews banned him from the synagogue. They hated the gospel. They hated Paul. And they incited a riot, brought false charges against him. And in response to these charges, the city officials, not wanting there to be any disruption within the community, they threatened those who were sheltering Paul. And that forced the apostle to leave under the cover of night. These young converts had already suffered much for embracing the gospel. And Paul realized that his continued presence would only fan the flames of that persecution. Now, having said all of that, don't get the wrong idea. The mission in Thessalonica was a resounding success. But it came at a high cost, both for Paul and for those who believed the gospel. The apostle preached, despite great opposition against him. And those converts, they joyfully received the the word of God and Christ as Lord, despite much affliction. And the persecution was relentless. Having to leave these young converts then to face this hostility on their own weighed heavy on Paul's heart. He was concerned about whether they had been adequately grounded in the faith, and he was desperate to know how they were doing. 
We're told that he made several attempts to return to them, but Satan set up roadblocks at every turn. His plans were repeatedly thwarted, but the Apostle Paul didn't give up. He was determined. He knows God is sovereign, and therefore the enemy will never have the last word. However, it soon became clear to him that the Lord wasn't going to overrule Satan in this particular instance. No, Lord had something else in mind. But this knowledge that God is in control still didn't calm Paul's anxious heart. He needed some relief. And so he decided that if he couldn't go, he would risk being left alone in Athens and send Timothy in his place. And as it turns out, this is exactly what God intended. And it's an important lesson for us, something we need to remember. We must never, ever second-guess God. How dare we think we could? He has, yes, ordained the path that we walk. He has charted it before the foundation of the world. He has prepared every good work that we are to do in advance before the foundation of the world. However, though our God has designed our entire path from beginning to end, the road ahead is new to us. We haven't seen it. Only God has. And so we must trust him with every step we take. And though God is in control then, we are responsible for what we do. This is what scripture teaches us. And so we must never, ever use God's sovereignty as an excuse for laziness or apathy. And what's more, it is never our place to figure out what God is doing. He doesn't tell us, see if you can figure out my plan. See if you know what I'm doing. No, the Lord didn't call us to be some sort of spiritual sleuths. No, the Lord expects us to seek his will through study and prayer. To look to him to guide us and direct us. And if we will, then however things turn out, we will have peace. Why? Because we know that we have been obedient to his revealed will. And that's what God expects of us. And this is what Paul did. In any case, God was working his good purpose through this entire ordeal. Everything planned just as God had intended. Paul's anxious concern drove him to pray. That was a godly thing to do. The long absence caused the Thessalonians' faith to be tested. And that was a good thing as well. And then the repeated quashing of Paul's own plans motivated him to send Timothy. And that's clearly what God had wanted for this mission. You know, I mentioned this last week, but this is very likely Timothy's first assignment on his own. He's young in the Lord, very young. And Paul, nor Timothy, considered it an ideal plan. They deemed it a concession. Paul is basically saying under the circumstances, we thought it the best course of action if I'm going to have any relief from this anxiety that I'm suffering. But again, this is what God wanted all along. And so sending young, frail, and timid, inexperienced Timothy was helpful to him, helped mature him, helped him trust in God for his ministry. He grew spiritually, I'm sure, through this. But sending Timothy also underscored an important truth for the Thessalonians. And the fact of the matter is, 
Paul isn't the one who supplies the needs of his people. God is. And so we see this in how Timothy is described. How does Paul describe Timothy? As God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ. Listen, the gospel isn't Paul's gospel. It's not Timothy's gospel. It's God's gospel. Gospel ministers are only the vessels through whom our Lord proclaims his gospel. And he equips all of his people with special gifts to use for the body of Christ that he might bless others through us. And that means that God graciously makes each and every one of us his co-worker. What a privilege. What a blessing that is. But in any case, Paul was desperate to know how the church was coping with the ongoing persecution. His anxiety-ridden heart could take no more. He says, I could stand it no longer. I could bear it no more. In his estimation, then, his relieved heart is worth risk being left alone in that pagan center, Athens. So he sends Timothy in his place. But the young minister is charged with more than a fact-finding mission. Timothy, go and see how they're doing. But while you're there, remember, you're God's co-worker. I'm sending you to strengthen and encourage these saints, these new believers who had been so relentlessly harassed by the enemies of the cross. Oh, their faith had been well established on that sure and solid foundation of the gospel. And they had been standing firm. But Paul knows how easy it is to grow weary in well-doing. Oh, don't we know it? Yes. And so the young minister was tasked with showing, uh, showing up and giving them confidence and assurance through the word of God, shoring up their faith and strengthening their resolve. He's also sent to encourage them, not just to strengthen, but to encourage them, to come alongside them and offer support, to cheer them on in the faith, reminding them why they ought to be rejoicing even in their afflictions. He was sent to build their confidence through God's word that they might not soon be shaken. And so now, listen again then to those first three verses. That's all we'll get to this morning. Lord, say the same. But listen again. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ to establish you and exhort you in your faith that... No one be moved by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are destined for this. Listen, Timothy was sent to strengthen and encourage the saints in their faith to build them up so that every single one, that's the language Paul uses, that every single one of them might stand fast and not be moved by these afflictions. The apostle Paul loved these saints, one and all, You know, if you remember in chapter 2, verse 12, I believe it is, that's where he reminded the Thessalonians how he had spent time personally discipling each and every one of them. The the apostle had developed a, a personal connection with these saints, and he is unwilling to concede even a single one to the enemy. He prays for them all. He wants them to stand fast, and Paul is fighting for them. 
And so he was confident that Timothy would strengthen and encourage them, that Timothy would equip them to remain steadfast in the face of their ongoing affliction. That Greek word that is translated affliction in this passage is thlipsis. And the definition is just as difficult as its pronunciation. Thlipsis. It, it paints a graphic picture. It means to squeeze. It means to crush, to press between tight spaces. Figuratively, it means to cause distress of heart. We all know what that's like, don't we? We can feel squeezed by the pressures of this world, can we not? And there are times when we feel as though the walls are closing in on us. There's no way out. We find it hard to breathe. Oh, this this word is quite a picture, isn't it? But things are not always as they seem. God is at work in those times. And what is he telling us? To look up. He's telling us to look up. That he not only ordained that we experience such moments, but as scripture says, he is our way of escape as well. There is no temptation taken us. But that which is common to man, but with them, our Lord provides his people a way of escape. And so these passing afflictions, they're being told, is for their good. They're for our good. The word thlipsis was used of treading grapes to make wine. Have you ever seen that done, especially at certain places in in, uh, Italy? My understanding is it's still a, a common practice. There are women within the city uh, take off their shoes and they step into the vat where the grapes are and they stomp them. They crush them. Those grapes are afflicted, if you will. They're crushed under the feet of the wine treaders. But here's the important thing to note. There's no wine without the crushing of grapes. There is therefore no sanctification, no future glory for God's people without the applied pressure of affliction, for it is that that proves the genuineness of our faith. This is what scripture teaches us. The afflictions are a good thing. Now, in the context of the Thessalonians situation, specifically it is the evil one who is afflicting them. Nonetheless, it was the Lord who decreed that experience for his people, for those people then, for us now, and he decreed it for our sanctification and his glory. And it's the Lord then who promises to preserve us through that affliction. As Paul told the Corinthians, we may well be afflicted in every way, but we are not crushed. There are times when, yes, we're perplexed, but it doesn't drive us to despair. Though we're persecuted, we're not forsaken, he says. And though we may occasionally be knocked down, it will not destroy us. Why? Because we are in the hands of our great God who is our protector and no one can snatch us out. He is the one preserving us. And this is what Paul wants the saints to remember. He's emphasizing this because he knows that the pain of relentless adversity poses a threat. It's the enemy's attempt to sift us like wheat. 
It's the enemy's attempt to wither us through the heat of tribulation. It's the enemy's attempt to pressure us into retreating, moving away from the faith and taking refuge in the world. But let me tell you this. If we take that road of retreat that the enemy is trying to pressure us into taking, if we allow him to move us from our faith, any such relief is short-lived and it will only, in the end, result in unimaginable suffering in eternity. No, the Apostle Paul says, whatever afflictions, afflictions we may suffer are light and temporal. And this comes from someone who experienced more affliction in his life than you and I could not dream of. They're light and they're momentary, but they are working an incomparable glory in us. Well, these young saints had been standing firm. But Paul was concerned that continued affliction might indeed move them away from their steadfast faith that it might indeed destroy their confidence in the Lord. That's the word that is translated moved in this passage. It means to disturb, to unsettle, to upset someone emotionally and to shake their confidence. That's what it means. And you know, the word also carries the connotation of persuading someone through deception. And that's exactly what's in view here because the Apostle Paul, as he will explain in the next few verses, this is the work of the evil one, the one Scripture calls the deceiver. He's the one tempting them. And you know, this highlights a problem that plagues many, especially in our day of ease and affluence. When everything is going well, what do we do? We tend to let our guard down, don't we? We don't find it so important that we find time to pray today. Everything's going well after all, right? And, and well, you know, uh, I, I'll, I'll attend worship with the people of God when it's convenient, but everything's going well. Why do I need to be there? Because God is worthy of worship. And he tells you not to forsake the assembling of yourselves together, right? But this is the point. When everything's going well, we tend to get lax, don't we? And we assume God is pleased because we have it so good. Ask the church of Laodicea. That is not a good way to think. Listen, a life of ease is not a litmus test of God's favor. Paul was concerned then that the relentless adversity might deceive them into thinking that they had believed the gospel to their detriment. I mean, Look at it from their perspective. We've turned from idols to serve the one Paul calls the true and living God. But things are worse than they've ever been. We're outcasts. We now find ourselves ridiculed and shunned by those who once considered us allies and even dear friends. Making a living is harder than ever because they don't want to do business with us. Does God really care about us? You see, this is what Paul is concerned about. Well, let me tell you, Scripture encourages his people, God's people, to hold on. You know, I think it was Orson Welles who once said that a happy ending depends on where you stop the story. I want you to think about that. Because if Christ's story ended with his burial in the tomb, his mission was a failure, wasn't it? 
If he remained in the tomb, that meant that his condescension in coming to, the, to earth was to no avail at all. But that's not where the story ended, is it? It didn't end with death. He rose again, victorious over death, hell, and the grave. And the same is true for the saints who are so beleaguered by affliction. As Paul told the Corinthians, listen, if there is no future resurrection, if there is no future glory for us, we are of all men most miserable. But it's not true. Because there is hope. There is a future resurrection. There is the blessing that God promises. And there is a glorious harvest to be reaped if we faint not, says the Scripture. And so with all confidence, I can tell you this. We don't have much farther to go. And I can say that because even if you were to live another hundred years from now, that's nothing compared to eternity. Nothing. So just wait. The best is yet to come. And Paul reminds them of this again and again. He tells them at the end of chapter 1, we're waiting on Christ's return. He's the one who delivers us from the wrath to come. And then he tells them again, he's the one who sanctifies us and preserves us blameless before the coming of our Lord, our God, and our Holy One. His promise is sure we can trust him. He's coming again to raise us incorruptible, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Paul continues to tell them to look up to see the redemption that draws nigh. And so Paul tells these saints that the reason for Timothy's visit is to remind them of what they already know. Hopefully, I'm telling you this morning what you already know. Timothy had come to them to strengthen them, to encourage them, that they might remain vigilant and steadfast. We must never allow the present afflictions of this life to disturb us, to unsettle us, to upset us. They mustn't ever cause us to lose our hope. We must never let the troubles of this life shake our confidence. And that's what Timothy is telling them. Now, of course, those are all natural reactions, are they not? Whenever we're having trouble, or even when just simply something isn't going our way, don't we get frustrated and irritated? Yeah, and, and the longer the trouble persists, the more discouraged and upset we, we tend to get. You know, the part of the problem is we have false expectations. Yeah, yes, the Lord has promised us a glorious existence, an existence free of grief, one free of pain and death, but not yet. For the moment, we are still inhabiting a world corrupted by sin, a world that we are told lies under the sway, under the influence of the evil one. As Peter tells us, yes, we have an imperishable, undefiled, and unfading inheritance that is kept for us in heaven. And we rejoice, he says, in this salvation, even though presently we are grieved by various trials, he says. But he tells them, keep this in mind. It's only for a little while. 
And so Paul is saying much the same thing here. Do not be disturbed by the ongoing trouble because you know this is how it is supposed to be as we make our way through this fallen world of sin. So don't forget that this is exactly as it ought to be. So Paul is assuring these saints then that they had not turned to the Lord from idols in vain. No, he reminds them that this affliction was present with them from the very beginning. They were never without it. The trouble began the moment they believed the gospel. For Paul says, you received it with joy in the midst of much affliction. And of course, they shouldn't expect the world then to suddenly do an about face and shower them with praise. That's not going to happen. And if that did happen, that would be something to be worried about. Do you know why? Because that would mean that they had betrayed the Lord by compromising with the spirit of the age. You know, this is a great danger. This is what the the church is facing today. It's what's happening among many professing Christians in our day. They're compromising with this world so that this world will embrace them. They're siding with the present evil age and calling good evil and evil good. They're calling righteous what God calls an abomination. Listen, Jesus said we should beware when all men speak good of us. As he told his disciples, listen, the world will hate you. Why? Because it hates me. That's what he says. If we're not looking enough like Jesus for the world to hate us, there's a problem with our growth. So scripture is clear. We are to expect afflictions in this life. Now, if you have understood this, if you've understood what I have said to this point, I think you're ready for some good news, aren't you? What is the good news in this? Is there good news in this? Absolutely. Do you want to hear it? Yeah, Paul tells us we're destined for this affliction. That's the good news. We're destined for it. Affliction is a normal part of the life of the Christian. God's people are no strangers to trials and troubles and tribulation. And so for those who are in Christ, affliction isn't rare. It's to be expected. Now, affliction comes in many forms, and Lord willing, we'll talk about some of those forms next week. But just for this morning, know this. That affliction is part and parcel of what God has ordained for his people. We are destined for this. And this is a passive voice verb. All that simply means is it's not something we choose for ourselves. In fact, I don't know that I would have chosen it for myself. I dare say you wouldn't either. But it was chosen for us. It's what God has appointed for us. It is what he has set forth for us. It is what he has decreed for us before the foundation of the world. This is what he has designed for us before time ever began. And there's a reason for it. It is God's will for his people. It is our appointed lot. It's all in his plan. It's part of the purpose for which we exist in this present world. Why, whenever we came to Christ, did he not just whisk us away into his presence? I've often wished that he had. But he's chosen not to, hasn't he? 
No, there's a purpose why we are here in this world. And the very fact that we are suffering afflictions of whatever kind is a sign of his favor. It's part and parcel for why we exist. Do you see? Where is the blessing in all of this? Where is the good news in all of this? Well, there's a lot that could be said about why this is such good news. But for one thing, being crossways with the world is a good thing. Being crossways with the world is a sign that we're not like them. It marks this out. It identifies us as those who belong to God. Being afflicted then is good news because it means that we're on the wrong side of the world, but we're on the right side of the Lord. That's what it means. And I am surprised today by the many Christians who seem to be claiming that affliction is something we don't have to bear. That's something we can reject. Something over which they say God has given us the authority to avoid. That is nowhere in Scripture. That is the vain imaginations of men of doctrines that have come from the pit of hell itself. For this is exactly what Satan is, the deceiver, who wants you to believe what is wrong, what is in error, what is against God. And so I think to myself, are they so ignorant of God's word? Sharing in Christ's sufferings means we share in his glory. There's the good news, right? Romans 8, 17, if we suffer with him, we will share in that glory. And this affliction is not optional. But it's also not a disadvantage. It is a gift. That's what Paul says in Philippians 1.29. Do you remember when we went through the book of Philippians? Chapter 1, verse 29, an astounding statement by the Apostle Paul. We have been granted the gift of not only believing in Christ, but suffering for his sake. He told Timothy that living a godly life brings persecution. And you know, of course, the definitive word comes from our Lord himself. Jesus says, blessed, blessed, happy, to be envied are we when others insult us, when they persecute us, when they lie about us, when they slander us. And then he says, what's the response to that? What are we to do when people insult us and persecute us and lie about us for the sake of Christ? He tells us we're to rejoice. That's not the first thing that comes to your mind, is it? (laughs) Rejoice. Be exceedingly glad. Why? For great is your reward in heaven. Great is your reward in heaven. You know, those who are so desperate for the world's affection, they need to remember what Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 10, 34. We need to have a realistic view of the world in which we live. Jesus tells them, and this is the Prince of Peace who is speaking, but Jesus tells them, as the Prince of Peace, I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. Why? Because there will be division before there is peace. The peace is within the body of Christ. 
And the peace that will ultimately be is in the new heavens and the new earth. He is the prince of peace in that respect. But before that can happen, there has to be a sifting. There has to be a dividing. And so he comes to bring a sword. And so Jesus told his disciples, you'll be hated by all nations because of me. Now, put that over against what he says in the Great Commission. If we're fulfilling the Great Commission, we're making disciples of all nations, are we not? That's what the scripture says. But if we are fulfilling the Great Commission and making disciples of all nations, Jesus also tells us we'll be making enemies of all nations. That's to be expected. That's what we should see as normal for God's people. So yes, whenever we proclaim the gospel, the elect will rejoice. And they will come to Christ just as these Thessalonian saints did, despite the much affliction that was brought upon them because of it. When they hear the gospel, they will be quickened in heart and they will know that it is the voice of our Savior that they hear. But at the same time, we will be opposed for refusing to unite with the world, this world that organizes itself against our God. They will hate us for the same gospel for which God's people will love us. And this is what Scripture says. So Jesus gave us this often overlooked promise. One of my favorite books in the New Testament is the Gospel of John. For one reason, because it's so different from the other Gospels. He tells us so much that the other Gospels don't. But this great promise is there in John 16, verse 33. And if you've been around me for any length of time at all, you've heard it again and again. But how we need to hear it. How we need to hear it. For he says, in this world, you will have tribulation. You will have affliction. He didn't say you might. He said you will. You will have tribulation. But, he says, be at peace. Have great courage. Why? Oh, because you're strong and you can take it? No, it's not what he says. You're not strong and you can't take it. And neither am I. And so what happens to us is we begin to live out 2 Corinthians chapter 12. In our weakness, his strength is made perfect. That's what happens. That's what happens. That's why we're able to stand. And that's why we can be at peace and we can have good courage. And he tells us the reason is because he says, I have overcome the world. In the Greek, that is a perfect tense verb. What that means is, I've already defeated it, and it will remain defeated. The world will never rise again. It will never have the power it once had before Christ came. We look at the world around us and we say, how can that be? Look at all the bad things that happen in this world. They are, they're all leading to that moment when he will be revealed from heaven. And every knee will bow and every tongue confess. Oh, make no mistake. The world only spins out of control as far as he says it can. He is in control. He has overcome the world and it remains defeated. And that is our promise. And so I want you to think of this. Yes, we were destined for affliction. 
But what a great promise that is because of what it says about who we are, whom God has made us as his people. Talk about being on the right side of history. There it is. That's the side to be on. That's the winning side. That's the side that will prevail. All of this foolishness we're hearing today is you're on the wrong side of history. You're going to find out that you've been left behind. No, it's quite the reverse. When all the dust is settled, it will be God's people still standing. It will be God's people still standing. And that's the right side of history. You know, the scripture tells us we enter into the kingdom through many afflictions. And there's good reason for that. Following Christ comes at a cost. He tells his disciples to count the costs. Oh, of course it's worth it. There is no comparison. The only reason you wouldn't believe it was worth it is if you're blind to the truth. But when God opens your eyes, you realize whatever the cost, whatever it may be, oh, it is so worth it. For our Lord God is the Savior of our souls, the keeper of his people, and he will bring us into glory. So I'm here to encourage you this morning with these words. We may well lose many friends. We may well lose many loved ones. How can that be an encouragement? Because the cost is nowhere near to be compared with the reward. The reward of being faithful to our Savior. And so my prayer is as Paul prayed for the Thessalonian saints, may the Lord grant us the grace to rejoice in our suffering, to be strong and steadfast and unmoved and refuse to be shaken by them. And let us stand fast in those afflictions, rejoicing in those afflictions, for they are a mark of God's love for us. This is what the scripture says. And that's the great blessing, the blessing that we have been destined for affliction, for his sake, for the kingdom of heaven. May God give us the grace to embrace that, to rejoice in him. To take joy in the God of our salvation. As Habakkuk said, doesn't matter if there's no figs on the fig trees, no cattle in the stalls. Doesn't matter how bad it looks, how bleak it looks. Yet I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. I will take joy in him. For this is God's will for us. Let us embrace it with his power, with his strength and with eyes that are always looking up, for he is coming again, and he will receive us unto himself, and so shall we ever be with our Lord. Amen. And to him be glory forever and ever. Amen.